welcome to Glam City. I'm Anna Clark. And I'm Tamsin Peach. And this is our happy, funky second season. And we're very excited to be bringing you many curated audio treats in 2018. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Glam City, we're a sort of little history outfit. We curate audio. That was quite good. We're going to lift the curtain and take you behind the scenes to reveal some of the marvellous archivists, curious curators and purveyors of cultural heritage who are working in galleries, libraries, archives and museums across Australia. And on this episode, we are speaking to not one, but two live actual historians, if you can't under and I, that's four historians <laughs> in one room, to talk about the history of work in Australia, amongst many other things. So we want to welcome today Elizabeth Humphreys and Sarah Gregson. Hello. Thanks Hi. very much for having us. Elizabeth is a political economist whose research on civil society's responses to crisis and economic change dominates her work. And um, she's recently finished a book called How Labor Built Neoliberalism, a more apposite book for this moment. I probably can't think of. Thank you for joining us. And Sarah is a Labor historian at the University of New South Wales uh, in Sydney and an associate for the Australian Society for the Study of Labor History and an Encyclopedia of Monuments to the Titanic in Australia. <laughs> we will come to that, Sarah. Hello. Hi there. I forgot to say that Elizabeth is also associate for the Centre of the Future of Work, which is run out of the Australia Institute. Now, you guys are running, you're about to launch a new seminar series based in here in Sydney. Um, it's called Work Past and Present. Could you tell me a bit about how it uh, came to be? Sure. I think Sarah and I were both thinking that labour history in Australia had a, a, a great kind of legacy in terms of putting on seminars, but often these were very focused on celebrating great moments in labour history. What we wanted to do was develop a seminar that kind of did two things, that reflected on those historical moments and historical processes through present issues facing trade unions, workers and changes in work. And we also wanted to make sure that we took a more critical take, that we weren't necessarily just celebrating this great history of um, labour struggle and labour events, but uh, working through the problems of the labour movement in the last sort of 20 to 30 years. So is labour history not about the Labour Party, but about work more specifically for the technical people out there who are wondering what labour history is? This is a pet peeve of mine that I say it's L-A-B-O-U-R. <laughs> um, obviously, the Labor Party is a key part of that history, but um, we want to talk about history from below as well, you know, what ordinary people were doing to try and change their lives. And so you're doing something really fascinating here, which is thinking about the relationship between politics now and history. How is that going to play out in the terms of people you've got speaking? Um, well, I think... One of the key things is to talk about uh, the struggles from below, campaigns that people engaged in. Um, the early ones will talk about various oppressions. And so I think looking at how people uh, looked at what was going on in the round, tried to organise, worked in with uh, formal political parties and their trade unions, but also, you know, organise themselves. So what are some of the topics that will be covered? And Well, the first one is about organising works, uh -huh. um, which is an attempt by the labour movement to train up a new generation of uh, union 
officials who could go into workplaces and particularly I think they were focused on talking to young people, you know, what, why is it that um, young people may not join trade unions and what can they do to turn that around. And what has been the, the sort of some of the historical reasons why trade unionism seems to be declining in terms of its popularity and maybe also influence in Australia? Sure, that's an international phenomenon, really, particularly in advanced capitalist countries where unionism really fell away in what we call the neoliberal era. So sort of after the recessions of the 1970s and there was a lot of economic change, um, literally, say, in the US and the UK, industry moves from the um, north of the US into the south where there's lower unionisation rates. Industries that have been well unionised like mining and car manufacture start to fall away and new industries that are less well organised start to grow like service industries. So some of it's about structural changes in the economy then influencing unionisation rates and one of the questions and why the labour movement started organising works was that as union, what we call density, the number of people who were in unions fell, how were they going to try and address that? And organising works is an attempt to try and stem the tide of numbers leaving unions or never joining unions in the mm. first place. So what we want to talk about is was that why did they do it? Was it successful? And really what are the issues confronting those advanced capitalist countries who that once had lots of union members in Australia it was over 50% well into the 80s and we're now talking around uh, 13% and 9% in the private sector so we're talking a massive significant change and why is that important to understand do you think in an, you know you're running this seminar yep. Um, lots of people are talking. What, 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 what do we hope to learn from these well, events? The, I think the, the contemporary issue that really confronts us at the moment is wages, right? Um, wage growth and people's ability to have a good living standard and maintain that living standard is connected to what wages they get. What wages people get is often connected to whether their industry is well unionised or well organised and whether workers can exert some control over um, demanding wages in that particular industry. And that's really fallen away. And we would have seen like the Reserve Bank governor come out and say, workers need to ask for more wages. Well, it's not as simple as that. When you've had unions really, their power crushed in the last 20 years, it's not just that workers aren't asking for more money, it's that because unions have, have sort of been disempowered, they haven't been able to get those wage gains. And this is a massive problem for Australia in terms of if workers don't get money and they haven't got money in their pockets, they can't go and buy things. And so what the Reserve Bank Governor was saying, this is in the interests of the whole economy. I think another thing is job security and it's one of the things why I think linking history and today are so important. When we look at people employed in the gig economy, for example, some of those forms of labour are as old as capitalism themselves. So, you know, workers walked up the hungry mile looking for a job two, three times a day. Now they wait at their app thinking, am I going to get work today? Um, have I been good at work? Am I going to get a tap on the shoulder? Or will they say no, that they ask for too much? So many of those uh, things that we face today have historical um, antecedents that we think young people can learn from and that we can use to help organise. Yeah, on that, you know, historians sometimes say, well, you know, there are lessons from history or, you know, non-historians say we should learn the lessons <laughs> from history. What do you think history... Do you think history does teach us lessons or does it do something else for us now in the political moment we're in? 
I think it certainly can teach us lessons. We're doing a project on the Westgate Bridge and we want OHS to be front of people's minds when they look at that tragedy to say, well, we need to learn something about how to make workplaces safer. But I think understanding the historical antecedents of where you've come to helps you understand all sorts of things about why your life is the way it is. So I think it's, um, it's, enormous on a, it's enormously important on a lot of levels. It also strikes me that it shows us that the world can be different and that banding <laughs> together can create change. Yeah, you know? yeah. Maybe not in the same way as what, what we did in the past, but, you know, that nonetheless yeah. change can happen. There are a range of historians who've um, announced the end of history and they've ended up with mud on their faces. <laughs> the sun keeps rising and new days <laughs> keep being formed that are historical. Now, before we move on, tell us where people can um, come to these seminars. When they're on, where do they come to? And uh, it's open to everyone, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We're hoping for a really open sort of session where half the time is spent with people talking about issues and half the time is with everybody asking questions and getting involved in discussion. They're going to be on Thursday nights, the first Thursday of the month at 5.30, and they're based at UTS, so hopefully that's easy for people to get to. And the first one is March the 8th, so International Women's Day would kick off. And, oh, yeah, great. It's a yeah. great day for a, a launch. See, it's not the end of history. It's so... <laughs> oh, my God, not on this show. <laughs> history oh, just MG. keeps going. <laughs> history keeps going. Uh, but you mentioned the Westgate Bridge collapse, and it would be great to talk mm-hmm. about that now. And you, you've got a shared project on the Westgate Bridge. Could you just tell us what happened in 1970? Well, in 1970, there was a very important bridge being built in Melbourne to was supposed to link you know, two formerly separate parts of the city and really take the city forward. It had a range of construction problems that weren't addressed and um, on the 15th of October at about 10 to 12 it collapsed and took 35 lives with it. We want to talk about the collapse particularly to look at what happened but we also wonder about how those workers have been memorialised, you know, what has their legacy been used to say we've obviously got our own ideas about the importance of occupational health and safety but we wanted to look and see whether the Westgate Bridge still lives in people's memories and what sort of message does it say. And in terms of that legacy you sort of allude to two there, one of them is the sort of labour legacy in a sense mm-hmm. in terms of the response, OHS response and uh, the Royal Commission that was held afterwards and the sort of government um, measures used so that that might never repeat and then the other on the flip side of that is the, the memorialisation and the memory and the importance of that moment I suppose in Melbourne's history but also in Australia's labour history uh, mm-hmm. to come back to your seminars. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps the first and then the second? What was the legislative response to the Westgate Bridge collapse? Uh, That's what we're looking at at the moment. Employer behaviour in that time didn't have to be terribly uh, strong. Uh, Sometimes it was a matter of slinging the wives a few dollars and that was about it. But um, it's also a period where there's a lot of talk about OH&S in workplace and further legislation. There's a a very important and influential report in in England called the Robins Report that starts to look at the importance of involving trade unions in occupational health and safety. Sorry to jump in, but does that, um, was the Westgate Bridge construction really slapdash and were they sort of ignoring, you know, 
best practice and that sort of thing? Or was it just a, an unforeseeable accident that happened that the, people wanted to learn from? Well, I hasten to add that Liz and I aren't engineers, so um, we're reading the transcripts and certainly the um, final report does criticise um, some methods. I think from a Labor historian point of view, I look at the, um, the contracting arrangements on the bridge and that's a message for today about when corporate responsibility is layered upon layer upon layer, then it sometimes um, communication is difficult, disorganisation in the labour process and so forth. I think you can definitely say that we can see those things. Mm. And in terms of the memorialisation, list, what has been some of the sort of legacies and the memories of this really important moment? I guess our starting point, like some people ask, why are two academics from Sydney interested in the Westgate Bridge? Apart from excuse to go and watch football. Yeah, well, we did <laughs> watch the first round of the <laughs> AFLW while we were down there. But um, Sarah's obviously got a, a long interest in labour memorials. But for me, I grew up very close. I was born very close to where the collapse was and I think in the memories of people particularly from working class families in Western Melbourne you're very conscious that the collapse happened and if you go into Melbourne what we would call the back way you go past that memorial and so for me it's always something that sat with me and you're quite conscious that even if you're not well, at that point, I didn't think I had any direct connections to it, but, it, you know, it's a very sad event and the, the memorial was a sad place to sort of go past. So I have those ideas about what the memorial means to me. We're now looking at what has the memorial meant for the survivors and families and particularly the group of workers who set up a memorial committee and have... Um, there's been memorials that have happened every single year since the collapse. We're at 48 years this October. And I think what we want to know is, well, why, why is it still going? Why do people still see it as really important to come together every October? And we're just in early stages, I guess, of talking to the people involved uh, about that. Mm. And it, despite the initial sort of stage of your research, does it feel a little bit like a tale of two cities where this memory is very strong in certain parts of the community, but perhaps in other areas of Melbourne or in government levels, it's not such a, it's not really on the commemorative radar? I think so in terms of just my personal experience of talking and putting on social media that I was working on the project over the last two weeks. So I was at a conference, I um, was speaking to another academic who is an international political economist. This is, these are the sorts of issues she would care about. But she grew up in the east of Melbourne. She didn't know that there'd been a collapse and she certainly didn't know that 35 workers had been killed. And, and so for me, the geography of Melbourne and how history can play out quite differently is of real interest to me. You know, this bridge was built by a private consortium who wanted particularly to be able to increase accumulation, you know, making money in the west of Melbourne through the petrochemical complexes. And, you know, it wasn't the state government who went and built it. It was a private organisation that was given a whole lot of rights to claim land and build this bridge. Those sorts of issues about private contractors constructing major infrastructure I, don't, I can't think of a more contemporary issue in terms of um, political economy. So I think in terms of the risk that workers are in in workplaces in regards to occupational health and safety and the sort of arrangements that they work under, who's responsible for what, can they control safety? Can they stop working if they feel unsafe? These, these are really contemporary issues. And maybe this um, process of looking at how 
those workers have memorialised over the years trying to highlight that these issues are always an issue in workplaces. Um, I think for me that started to come through in the mm. early days of the research. I think it's also an age and class question. I'm <coughs> years old and I was 11 when you do the math um, <laughs> when the uh, when the bridge collapsed and although I grew up in Sydney my dad was a boilermaker and so we knew very very certainly that a major thing had happened and I think its um, sad history as the worst industrial uh, accident we've ever had in Australia sticks with people, particularly in working class communities. But we wonder, you know, when the old fogies have died off like me, how how will this memory um, keep going? Could you just describe the memorial itself? Because one of the Mm. ways to you know, perpetuate memories, of course, through the physical instantiation of what that memorial looks like. Yeah, it's a very moving place. The initial memorial was a uh, a plaque that listed all the people who were killed in alphabetical order and talked about people from all different lands coming to build the bridge. But since then, a memorial park has been developed and there are these 35 um, columns representing each of the killed people in a row. It's a very quiet place, even though it's on a big road, and the memorial is right at the site where the uh, the crash happened. So it's and it's attached to the bridge, right? I think mm-hmm. that's one thing we will be talking to people about is why, out of all the places they could choose to put a memorial, is it on the bridge itself, and mm-hmm. what is the importance of how permanent perhaps the memorial is by the fact that it is right there on a major road with people driving past and it can be seen. Mm. We wondered if it would be under threat in future times, you know. Um, at the moment, uh, there's a lot of support for it, but again, you know, what happens when years have passed and people think, oh, this is unsightly, let's, like a lot of other memorials, they get moved aside. I mean, it's it's very fascinating that it's in a park, and I I'm um, I can imagine it is now it is now yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, mm. but I can imagine that now people use that park for all sorts of reasons. They do they jog in it, do they cycle through it? I mean, are you able to get at how the community understands and uses that um, that space? It's because it's directly under the bridge, and the area was effectively sort of wetlands. It sort of exists at the end of the strip of land that runs from. Williamstown to Newport along the water. So you do get some people who will jog past and it is a major cycling route. So people do see it. But um, I can remember when I was a kid that the memorial, there wasn't really much there. There was the memorial, but it was sort of a dusty side of the road. And so one of the reasons why certainly the committee was so pleased that a park was created, we're talking a very small, small park around the one of the pillars of the bridge, is because they felt that that was more fitting and they put in better lighting and they wanted this to be a place where people could go and spend time. Yeah. You're listening, listeners, to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or, of course, your favourite podcast app and search for Glam City. That's G-L-A-M City. This is a podcast brought to you by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating. It really helps other people find us. And we're here talking to Liz Humphreys and Sarah Gregson, both interested in labour and work. And Liz, you have a new forthcoming book, which is called How Labor Made Neoliberalism, and a more apposite uh, volume I cannot think of for our current political moment. 
What's this about? This is a book largely about the Accord, which was an agreement between the trade unions and the Australian Labor Party that was in place during the Hawke and Keating government. So for 13 years from 1983 to 1996, national economic policy was shaped by this, what we call a social contract or an agreement, and it was called an Accord. What I've looked at is often, you know, neoliberalism is a term largely in academia, a little bit in sort of public discourse about how often conservative governments came and sort of remade work and challenged trade unions and, you know, uh, drove free trade and did a whole lot of things. But this book is about not so much what just happens from the top down, but did trade unions actually help facilitate some of the changes around globalisation, free trade, changes in workplace that they also are very critical of. People would generally say, progressive people, that neoliberalism has been very bad for trade unions. And so I asked the question of, is there a more complicated history of how neoliberalism got constructed? And did trade unions and the Labor Party play a role in that? Particularly, did the Accord help facilitate these economic changes that have been pretty harmful for working people? Now, I am, you know, right up there with History Nerdland. I can recite names of prime ministers, governors of New South Wales, etc. But I'm stumped on the term neoliberalism, like some of my peers. Could you explain what it is and what it meant for Australia to dummies like me? You're not a dummy at all. Like, this is a big argument about whether it's such an imprecise term that it's meaningless. Some people say, look, really, it's just a slur term. People want to say people did bad stuff for 30 years and we're going to call it neoliberalism. But it comes out of liberalism being remade, right? And that certain economists and philosophers wanted to reinvigorate liberalism. They were critical of Keynesianism, critical of state states being heavily involved in making the economy. They wanted an economy that was more based around the rights of individuals, Mm -hmm. more decision-making in private hands, and it's really about more market, right? So more decisions being made in the market in, in very basic terms. So... You know, of course, states make markets as well. Markets are legal things. They're about, you know, whether you actually have to pay someone when you take something. That's that's the basis of capitalism, really. And whether somebody has to pay you when you go into a workplace um, and sell your your labour. Neoliberalism is about how those legal arrangements have been managed in the past, how they're going to be managed in the future, and what the state should do. Who should who should build schools? Who should build roads? Who should pay for them? Who should run electricity companies? Whether they should be in private hands or public hands? So they're just some of the debates. Um, so one of the things I understand you you do in this book is call for a reassessment of the origins of, of neoliberalism, particularly in Australia. Why do you think that's important, and how, what what can we learn from that now? Well, for me, perhaps where we started is linked, that the decline of trade unions in particularly the 80s and 90s in advanced capitalist countries, for me, might be related in some ways to trade unions making decisions about um, coming to agreements with governments or coming to agreements, agreement with businesses to, say, hold down wages. And so the big aim of the accord was it said wages would not grow over inflation and that this was going to help the Australian economy in a period where there were lots of recessions. What happened in practice is wages were suppressed. Ordinary people's wages went down dramatically in the 1980s and 1990s under a Labor government. And that led to real crunch points for working people. People lost their houses, there was lots of unemployment. It made life very difficult. So for me, 
People often say, well, working people had to tighten their belts in that period. But actually, you know, it wasn't equal, right? If you were a doctor or you're an um, architect and you're charging prices to people and that's your wage, they weren't held down. But if you were a boilermaker or a school teacher, your wages were held down. And for me, that's a problem. And the accord is seen as a very, uh, the high point of relations between the Labor Party and the trade unions and ha as having remade Australia. You know, that's what the message we get from both journalists and academics, from, you know, George Megalogenis to, you know, various... <laughs> everyone. Um, but I think that there is a growing number of people in Australia and internationally who want to say, was it okay for unions to actually internally stop people for struggling from better wages, suppressing industrial action? Was that the right thing to do? And even if we don't make a judgment about the right thing, we're not there in those difficult circumstances of all those recessions, but we can say they made this decision. What were the good, bad and difficult consequences of those decisions? That sounds fascinating. And congratulations on the upcoming release of your book. Can you, you tell us where it will be available? Like most academic books, it'll be um, in a hardcover volume first where you can order it for your library because it won't be very cheap. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be out in the second half of this year. But through. if all your libraries order it, then the price will go down because the <laughs> demand, that's the market, Hey, right? dude. That's true, that's the market. <laughs> Neoliberalism. <laughs> it's not And then over, there's guys. a paperback copy in um, probably about 12 months, 18 months after that, which will be about $30, which pleases me. If you want people to read your work and have a debate, right? I'm interested in opening up a debate, not closing a debate. Having a paper, uh, paperback copy is important. Now, earlier we dangled the carrot of the Titanic. Um, I'm which so you, glad you remembered. Which you would totally not expect to be appearing on this. Well, maybe you should be expecting for it to appear on a show about Labor history. You are putting a new edge on our Glam Slam segment, aren't you? But you would not expect a Titanic memorial to be in the very middle of Australia in Broken Hill. I've actually mm -hmm. been to the Titanic memorial. But uh, this is your uh, bread and butter. So tell us, why is there a Titanic memorial in the middle of the Australian desert? Well, um, funny you should ask. Um, uh, <laughs> I was in Broken Hill probably doing more normal research in Broken Hill about mining history and I was walking through the park to the archives, as you do, and there I saw a Titanic memorial in, in Sturt Park and this may not have struck many people as odd. I mean, it is odd that it's in a desert town, but my great-grandfather was a stoker on the Titanic who didn't survive and so I've always grown up with that story and wondered, you know, what happened and so forth. And so I started looking into the origins of that memorial and found that there were actually three memorials to the Titanic in Australia, all in mining towns and all with various messages towards the bandsmen who allegedly stayed at their post and did their duty by playing while the ship was sinking. I think the idea that you played a light air when the ship's in its death throes is unlikely, but uh, the best story we have is they packed up about half an hour earlier. But nonetheless, there was a message, very strong message there for unionised workers in Broken Hill. It was placed right where the unions had their open air meetings to say these were the good workers. They stayed at their post and did their duty and you should do the same. So who erected it? Who funded it and erected it? In Broken Hill, it was a uh, memorial committee. If you go to the visitor centre, it will say that the workers understood workers who didn't come home. But actually, the committee was made up of my managers and yeah. local church people and so forth. There wasn't a radical to bless it. If anyone is visiting Broken Hill in the next little while, check it out. I tell all my international visitors to go to Broken Hill because it is remarkable 
remarkable. It is a wonderful place. It's an Pre- incredible place. If you like pressed tin, <laughs> <laughs> pressing silex. How about you, Liz? What's on uh, your history radar in the coming weeks? I'm going to go to Queer Stories, which is a queer storytelling night at Giant Dwarf in Redfern. And in March, it's the 78ers. So some of the people who are on the first Mardi Gras march and riot, I guess, and are involved in um, the policing of that in King's Cross in Sydney. How about you, Anna Clark? Um, I'm going to go and see The Lady and the Unicorn, the tapestries from 1500 in France at the Art Gallery of New South Wales because I am quite parochial in my study of Australian history and I thought I needed to broaden my horizons. Um, That's like, that's a total counter. um, You would never predict me. It's like... (laughs) (laughs) Or to my usual weekend, which is like fishing, snorkelling, doing something really sporty, getting some culture. So thank you, listeners, for joining us once again on Glam City. Um, It's brought to you, as you know, by 2SER 107.3. To download the show, head to 2SER.com and join us next week, we hope, for another great Glam City. It's going to be freaking awesome. Freaking awesome. Glam out. (laughs) 